Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The Jazz Loft Radio Series is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. In the heyday of 821 Sixth Avenue, people tended to refer to the place as the Sixth Avenue Loft to distinguish it from the many other lofts around the city. These days, we call it the Jazz Loft. But what was necessary to make a loft a jazz loft? Not just any place would do. It was in a commercial district, so after 6 p.m., there were hardly any neighbors to worry about. And it was located in between Midtown and Downtown, on the way to everywhere, from everywhere. Sam Stevenson, author of the book The Jazz Loft Project, and the man who discovered the Jazz Loft tapes in Eugene Smith's archive, asserts that there are other characteristics that made 821-6 the place to come, hang out, and play all night. I think it became the Jazz Loft because of the pianos that were there. When Hall Overton moved in in 1954, he had two upright pianos that were always tuned. Dick Carey had a Steinway B piano that was always tuned, and David Young had an upright piano that he had tuned. So there were four pianos. It was a place that musicians knew they could go and fine-tune pianos. There were drums there. There were drums there and also a drummer in residence. That was Ron Free. He called himself Ronnie Free then. Roughly 1958 to 1960, he was living there and had his drums set up there. So there was a good tuned drum kit there all the time. Free had begun his jazz life by doing what ambitious jazz musicians do. I came to New York when I was 18 years old. I believe it was 1955. All my life I'd heard about New York City being where you had to go. I, I would always, anytime I met musicians on big bands or whatever, I would say, man, what, what, what do you have to do to make it in this business? And that was always the first thing. Well, you got to go to New York. Free turned out to be one of the anchors of the loft for at least those couple of years, 1958 to 1960. He was dedicated to drumming. For one period of time, I kind of holed up in Gene Smith's loft and didn't even go out, didn't listen to records, just stayed there and played with whoever showed up and jammed for like, I don't know, several weeks. One of my closest friends was a saxophone player named Fred Greenwell, and he hung out at the Smith's loft. We used to hang out together when there was just the two of us, and you know, saxophone and drums, not exactly a, your typical combo. <laughs> but we would jam for hours, just the two hours. And often they'd be joined by Hall Overton, the Juilliard instructor whose apartment in the loft became a refuge for jazz and classical players who wanted some strong training in harmony and composition. Overton, Greenwell, and Free played tune after tune, sometimes going on all night, night after night. At one loft or another, Ronnie Free met Mose Allison, a trumpet-playing piano player who also sang. I played with Ronnie off and on for 30, 40 years, you know, and uh, Ronnie had uh, great technique, and he could do pretty much what he wanted to, you know. He was one of the drummers around that everybody liked, you know. Free had had a prodigious, rather miraculous career up to that point, having known from the age of eight, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, that drumming was what he wanted to do. I had pictures of just about every drummer that ever lived <laughs> all on my bedroom wall. 
I don't remember where I got that. I think Gretsch Drum Company must have. Yeah, because it would be like Max Roach, another rave for that great Gretsch sound, you know. So it would have a picture of Max Roach. Gene Krupa was one of his idols. Especially when I picked up the newspaper one day and, and they had a little feature that said today's birthday. And I found out we had the same birthday, January 15th. So I thought, well, gee, it must be in the stars. By the time he was 12, Free's father had managed to scrape together enough to get him a drum set, and Ronnie practiced on that, and picked up enough technique and style to start playing some clubs. When Gene Krupa came to Charleston, Free and his father went to hear him and managed to get an introduction. He said, Gene, this is my boy, Ronnie. Gene shook my hand and said, hello, Ronnie. How you doing? Would you like to sit in with the man? I said, sure. And so I did. And uh, I don't remember much about it. I had a few Krupa records, and I kind of knew the arrangements, disc jockey jump and a couple others. The crowd gathered around the stage and got standing ovation. So, I, you know, as far as the people were concerned, I guess I did all right. But uh, I was scared to death. <laughs> At 16, with his parents' approval, Ronnie Free left high school to go on the road with a comedy trio. And at 18, still hell-bent for drumming, he wound up in New York. Close to Christmas time. I can remember because I was staying with a friend of the family who lived on Staten Island. And we lived on top of this really pretty steep hill. And I could look out from the picture window of his house and I could see snow on all the hills and, and everything below. It's absolutely beautiful. And we don't get much snow in Charleston, so that was a new thing for me. I wanted to kind of study at the feet of the masters, so to speak. But I, I started getting gigs pretty quick, much to my amazement. And I started meeting people that I had uh, idolized. And it was all very intimidating. I went to all kind of different uh, nightclubs. At one club, he met a friend of pianist Lenny Tristano's. And the connection was a thrill. Because Lenny Tristano was like, uh, he was an icon. Uh, he had a lot of actual disciples, people that studied with him and practically worshipped him, you know, because he was quite an intellect and quite a player. Eventually, I wound up working with Lenny's band, with Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh. But that's kind of the way you got started. I would hear about jam sessions going on in the lofts. And that's where I met Mose Allison and Phil Woods and Zoot Sims and just a whole bunch of guys that eventually I wound up working with. That's how you got connected. So, it, you know, once you start rolling, it just, uh, it's a word of mouth thing. Word of mouth and his acquaintance with Mose Allison in the loft led Free to make a few commercial recordings. Allison on piano, Addison Farmer on bass, Free on drums. After the commercial gigs and recording sessions, sometimes at 3 a.m., he'd wind up at the loft at 821 6th Avenue to jam with Overton or Greenwell or whomever happened to be around.
He had just a beautiful, beautiful touch. Bass player Steve Swallow often played with Free in the jazz loft. And the drum set or, or various sets that kind of passed through that loft were often in ill repair and the heads were old and uh, the cymbals varied from poor to not so bad. Uh, Ron always seemed to be able to draw a sound out of whatever drums were available that was very personal and very musical. For Dave Frischberg, Ronnie was one of the principal draws of the loft space. I loved his playing so much. I used to go up there just to be able to play with him for a little bit and listen to him. I never heard a drummer address the set of drums the way he did. He was a freakishly good drummer and a complete natural. Ronnie Free, very young, very good drummer from Charleston, was on the rise. It was. Totally unprepared, though, psychologically and emotionally, because I had... My, my father was a tyrant, I mean, and violent, and he was an alcoholic, for one thing. So he eroded any semblance of self-esteem or self-confidence that I might have had, so I always felt, like, unworthy, you know, like, and they're going to find out sooner or later, so... And that's paralyzing. So I had a lot of stuff to work through there. By 1958... Free was completely single-minded and in nearly complete despair. He moved into Smith's loft and became known as the house drummer. I lived in several different lofts, and I think at the time that I was hanging out at Smith's, I might have been homeless (laughs) during that particular period because I had sunk to some pretty low levels economically and emotionally and mentally and so forth. But meanwhile, you know, my music was... I put all my eggs in that basket, and that was my total focus. The higher he got, the closer he came to his idols, the more his disillusionment started to overtake him. When I was about 12 years old, for example, a friend of the family took me to New York, and I went to Birdland, and I heard Errol Garner Trio, and he had a drummer named Shadow Wilson. And Shadow just totally dazzled me with his brushwork. Catching all the licks right in sync with Errol and the bass player, John Simmons, who I also met later. And so that made a profound impact on me. I, you know, I went home and started practicing my brushes, you know, because I didn't know that you could do that. I wasn't that interested in brushes. I didn't know the finesse and, and the, uh, just uh, it opened up new vistas for me. And so Shadow was one of the first people I met when I moved to New York. Many years later, somebody introduced us and... Turns out that Shadow was a junkie, and so was the bass player that was with Errol Garner, John Simmons. And so we used to all hang out, and I got sucked into that because these are my childhood heroes. And so it wasn't much of a stretch to just—I'd always smoke a little grass here and there, but Shadow introduced me to smack. Meanwhile, he basically lost all interest in music, and so he would send me out to sub on jobs that I would have died for, and it, he could have cared less. So I saw that, and I met a lot of other musicians who were alcoholics, and they were junkies. Well, that's the price of idolatry, I guess, you know, and you discover those clay feet sooner or later. But that kind of, my dreams kind of turned to dust. (laughs) So I was living the dream on one hand, and it was not at all like I thought it would be. So I was heartbroken at a very deep level. That Free was living a kind of double life 
as powerful musician and devastated soul was not so unusual for the place that Steve Swallow remembers. I mean, it was a dark place. There was a lot of tragedy unfolding in that building. As, as remarkable as the artistic output was, there was also a deep toll in uh, personal lives hitting the rocks in that place. Free slept on a lounge chair in Gene Smith's studio, playing drums whenever the opportunity arose. Gene was always busy with his uh, photography, and I never saw him be still. He was always looking at negatives, you know, and spreading out uh, pictures and going in the dark room and back out into the light. But he had this incredible loft that had all kinds of recordings, bookshelves all over the place. And so I used to hold up and then just read and listen to records and practice my drums. It was one of those things that we didn't have a need to talk. We just kind of work at ease in each other's energy field. <laughs> Ronnie Free continued to play with the idols he'd heard as a kid. Chico Hamilton, Woody Herman. He played with Lena Horne. He worked at the Hickory House with Marion McPartland, all the time walking a thin line. I think I was only dimly aware of the extent to which drugs were a, a central issue in the scene of that building. I was just kind of a garden-variety pothead. Steve Swallow. But, uh, you know, I, uh, Lynn Halliday was around a lot, and, and Sonny Clark, and several other guys, and I was aware that they were strung out. And Ron's generation, which was a, a generation or maybe even two before me, was just decimated by heroin. And I think it was kind of the Charlie Parker myth that they fell victim to. It was just uh, some kind of a, an adolescent plague that ran through all the young musicians. Bass player Bill Crow. I think we must have all tried it one time or another. I was lucky. I felt like I'd been poisoned and I didn't go anywhere near anything like that again. I was following in the feet of uh, my gurus, you know, my the jazz men that I'd grown up in awe of. And in the process of chasing the bird, <laughs> Charlie Parker, I wound up in Bellevue, where he did a little stint there, so did Charlie Mingus and any number of other jazz icons wound up in Bellevue. Any respectable jazz man <laughs> has to pay those dues, I guess. Anyhow, here I am in Bellevue, looking at these magazines and reminiscing, and I had a picture on the cover of Lena Horne, and uh, I kind of teared up. So tears were kind of streaming down my cheeks, and one of the attendants saw me, and he came over and says, uh, what's the matter with you, man? And I said, oh, I don't know, I just looking at my old boss here, you know, I used to work with Lena Horne, and he looked at the picture, and he looked at me, and patted me on the back and said, uh-huh, yeah, okay, <laughs> you take it easy now. <laughs> After a couple of years of getting deeper into the drug scene, sleeping on Gene Smith's Lazy Boy recliner and ascending to great jazz heights, Ron Free left the loft and New York and gradually kicked his drug habit. He quit playing altogether after a while. His old friend Mose Allison said the drugs hadn't intruded on the jazz at all. In fact, I was surprised when he left town, you know, and they said he had to get out because he was getting too much into something, I don't know. While he was there, we all knew that what was going on, we all knew that he was strung out, you know. Dave Frischberg. I never discussed it with him or anybody, but 
Yes, I knew. I did a few gigs for a while, but then I started working day gigs. I went back to school and got a few skills. So I just didn't think I would ever play again. And I went for like 10 or 12 years without playing, without even listening to jazz because it was too painful to listen to it and not be a part of it. He ultimately did return to music. But sometimes Ron Free wondered, looking back on that period, whether he'd really done all that, played so well, been so close to the top. After all, nobody in the business knew his name anymore, with the exception of the group of loft musicians who had known him and admired him back then. Then came the tapes. He could hear it for himself. The funny thing about music, I've noticed that... Um, I can listen to recordings that I made many years ago, and it's like I'm right back there again. I can remember what kind of day it was, you know, and the atmosphere and uh, who was there and blah, blah, blah. But every now and then I'll hear a recording and won't know who it is, and and I'll think, well, that that drummer sounds pretty good, and it turns out to be me. (laughs) As for his lost illusions, his idols who may have played a role in pushing him towards a drug habit, I look back at them with great compassion. And when I speak of feet of clay, I don't necessarily mean that they were bad people or morally bankrupt or whatever, although there might have been some of that. But I just saw them, you know, they were trapped, doing the best that they could under circumstances that they found themselves. Racism was a big part of it, I think, back in those days. You know, Shadow and John Simmons, they they were black guys, and they, they grew up with the contradictions of, you know, being jazz heroes on one hand and being, you know, the N-word, how do you, how, how, that does not compute. So it leads to all kinds of sicknesses and, and uh, neuroses and psychoses and so forth. So we're all victims in one sense, although I don't think we need to stay there. Ron Free, for all his ambition and his gifts, was never much of a showman, never an ingratiating, smiling kind of crowd pleaser which is one reason the jazz loft held such appeal for him. The loft scene was a way to get away from all that and not have to deal with it. And so it was very disinhibiting. It's like in a loft, you know, you could make clinkers and you could learn tunes and you could practice new licks and so forth that you might not want to attempt on a paid gig because they're paying you to know what you're doing, not be fumbling around. But uh, it was quite a ride, I tell you. I wouldn't trade it for the world wouldn't want to do it again, but uh, but I learned a lot, and it was just incredible experiences. So, by way of the Jazz Loft tapes, Ron Free, who was Ronnie Free a half century ago, a terrific drummer who was seminal to the scene, gets a rare chance to review his own rise and fall. This is the Jazz Loft radio series. In the next episode, Flowers at 6 a.m., in which some mid-century urban pioneers in New York's flower district find ways to make lofts more livable. We'd run an extension cord over the roof of the building between us and down into my loft, and I'd be able to run a hot plate and lights. We were a happy family. (laughs) That's coming up in Episode 7. Thanks to Sam Stevenson and to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. For WNYC's Jazz Loft Radio Series, I'm Sarah Fishko.
This series was funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts.